Thank you, worship team. So today we're in Luke chapter 5. We're going to talk about the critics of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. And thank you, Bridge Kids, for joining us this morning for worship. On November 19th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address during the Civil War at the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The Battle of Gettysburg was about three or four months old. It was the bloodiest battle in American history. An estimated 50,000, somewhere between 46,000 and 51,000 soldiers had fallen at Gettysburg. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address took about two minutes and only and about 272 words. I know you would like two-minute sermons, but we're not having any two-minute sermons. The Gettysburg Address is one of the uh, finest speeches in American history. In fact, it's one of the finest speeches in the history of the world. At the time of the speech, the majority of the U.S. press praised it. But Lincoln's speech also received some criticism. For example, the Harrisburg Patriot described um, Lincoln's speech as silly remarks. Later they retracted that. Uh, The New York World newspaper accused Lincoln of gross ignorance or willful misstatement. And they were especially focusing on when he said four score and seven years. Because they didn't understand exactly what he meant by that. The Chicago Times wrote, The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who had to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners to be the President of the United States. People had to, oh, that's Lincoln. The Times of London stated the ceremony at Gettysburg was rendered ludicrous by some of the sallies of, the, of poor President Lincoln. Lincoln had his critics. And Jesus had his critics too. And we're going to see some of those today. When Jesus was in the public serving people, it seemed especially easy for him to gather criticals and for some people to find fault with who Jesus was and what he was doing. And today we see this in Acts chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 5. And I want to read verses 27 through 32. I encourage you to open your scriptures or your smartphone. Acts, uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke wrote them both. I get confused really easily. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so this is the first criticism. It's a problem over a dinner party, verses 27 through 32. And first, uh, we see this great conversion in verses 27 and 28. And uh, Luke writes, after this, after what? So when you're reading the Bible and you see something like that, you need, what is the context? After what? After this? Well, Luke had just referred to the uh, time in Capernaum when Jesus was in a house, in a home, teaching And it was crowded with people all over. And there was no way to get into the house. And then there were four friends. And they brought their friend who was paralyzed. And so they couldn't get him in the door. So they took him up on the roof. And they took the tiles apart. And began to lower him down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And he was criticized for saying that, by the way. And then Jesus says, okay, to prove this, get up. Take your mat. Walk out of here. And that's exactly what happened. And it was after this, in verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. So it's right after this, he goes out of the house and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Levi is a Hebrew name. And Levi is also Matthew. Matthew 9.9, same story, Matthew's name And Matthew's name gets plugged in as one of the disciples. And it is Levi. Peter had a name of Simon. And his name was changed to Peter. And he was called Simon Peter. And he was called Peter. And he was sometimes called Cephas. It's not unusual to have different names. So this uh, Levi, Levi Matthew. And uh, he was at this uh, tax booth. He, He was stationed. He had a job. And as a tax collector, people brought their tariffs or their, um, they, they, were, they had to pay taxes, people, and it was on shipping charges. This was an international highway between nations, and um, people coming through the city on the road had to pass through and they had to pay taxes. And you may well know that tax collectors were not very popular people. In fact, they were often very much... They were viewed as social outcasts, primarily because, yes, they were to charge a tax for the sake of the government, but for them to have any kind of a salary or income, they had to charge more. And that was kind of like, okay. But the problem was, they all learned they could charge exorbitant amounts, and they could could make a lot of money, and they often became... um, much richer than the average working man. So Jesus went out. He saw this tax collector sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And Levi got up, he left everything, and he followed him. This is a dramatic conversion. This is a huge life change. Now, my assumption would be There's a story behind this that we don't have. My assumption is, just like uh, Peter and James and John had an encounter with Jesus. You know, they got to be in the crowds a little bit. They listened to him. I don't know. Maybe they listened several different days. Who knows? 
And then uh, we saw last week how Jesus called them to leave their fishing nets and they got up and they left everything. I'm assuming that Levi had a lot of information about Jesus, but we, we don't know for sure. It, it doesn't make a lot of difference, but that would be my assumption that he had heard Jesus teach and he saw something different about Jesus, something real and powerful and one who had authority and one he'd like to get to know. And then Jesus comes by one day and he speaks to him personally, looks him in the eyes and he says, follow me. I don't know what was going through Levi's mind, but he just got up and walked out. And he walked out on a pretty good income. And he walked into a future that he didn't know where he was headed except to follow Jesus. And that seemed to be good enough on this occasion. So Levi leaves everything. He's experienced a radical conversion. He's on a new path. And by the way, Levi never goes back. This isn't just one of those emotional experiences. He never goes back. Verse 29, we see a great party. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his home. Now, this is pretty exciting. Uh, Levi is so excited about Jesus. Jesus, I want you to come to my house tonight. Sounds a little bit like Zacchaeus' story, but that's not coming until Luke 19. I want you to come to my house tonight. I want you to meet all my friends. This is so exciting. I want my friends to meet Jesus. And so he held a great banquet. So I don't know what a great banquet is, but I imagine probably the alcohol was flowing. There was a lot of food and there was a party atmosphere and there were lots of people there. And a large crowd of tax collectors. That suggests there's a lot of them in the area. So somehow this is a pretty significant hub where there's a group of them. And a large amount of these tax collectors who were viewed as social outcasts. Because, see, Levi was a Jew and he should have had this identity with the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. But he doesn't. He's working for the man. He's working for the Gentiles. He's taking money off of us. This is extortion. And tax collectors are not very popular. And these are all Matthew's friends. And folks, let's get together. We're going to have a party. I want you to meet this guy. His name is Jesus. A large crowd of tax collectors and others. Who are the others? Well, um, Luke just doesn't say right here. Those others were also called sinners. And they get mentioned in other passages. But sinners were those people who were far from God. And, uh, you know, we all know, well, most of us know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All people were sinners. Even the Pharisees thought a little bit about that. But see, the sinners were people who had great sin. They were much worse than us. And they were sinners. And we don't associate with those people. We don't associate with tax collectors either. And this large crowd of tax collectors and these others, sinners, were eating with Jesus. And not only that, his disciples were there too, according to Matthew. 
for sure, like Peter, James, and John would have been there. Probably a few others. But they're eating together. And what we don't really recognize is this is really, really a big deal. Because eating is a place of intimacy. Eating is where you identify with friends and family. You do not cross lines. And you do not eat with social outcasts. That does not honor God. At least that would have been the common belief of the day of the religious leaders of Israel. And then we have this complaint in verse 30. And think about this. Jesus was hanging right out. This was a great party. I would, you know, it was common. One of the groups that fit under this term sinners in the Gospels are prostitutes. I would guess that this was probably a mixed group of people at this party. They were probably just in their natural element. And Jesus was just right there talking away, enjoying the meal. But the Pharisees, verse 30, and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect. This is the religious conservatives, ultra conservatives. They complained to his disciples. Now, they didn't complain to Jesus. They complained to his disciples, you know, go after the little guys. And um, they didn't approve of these kind of arrangements. Jesus, if you're such a holy man, if you're such a great leader of this, whatever it is, this some kind of movement, this doesn't fit at all. This is incongruent. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they ask. It's almost like saying, you shouldn't do this, Jesus. Everybody knows that. This is foolish. This is crazy. Nobody will follow you if you live like this. Sharing a meal meant, at least in the Pharisees' eyes, sharing a meal together meant you approved of these people and that you approved of this lifestyle. And so they were only willing to share a meal with people that they approved of their lifestyle. The clear reply in verses 31 and 32 Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This is a pretty wise response on the part of Jesus. He's not going to attack them back. You know, he's not defensive about this. He just puts out a new concept. And it probably kind of went right over their head at first. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, Jesus is the doctor. He is the great physician. And he's already demonstrated that. He just healed the paralytic. He's, he just healed Peter's mother-in-law. He is the great physician. He just forgave the sins of the paralytic. He is the doctor. It's not the healthy. It's not the spiritual, spiritually healthy that need the great physician. It's the spiritually unhealthy that need the great physician. It's the spiritually sick. Or it's those who are sinners and know they are. Know their state. Understand their uh, lack of health. 
Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, folks, if you are the healthy, then I'm not here for you. If you've already got it together, you don't need me. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they've got it all figured out. They've got God all figured out. They don't need Jesus. He's not there for them. He's there for for people who want something better in a relationship with God. And he didn't come to call the righteous. So Pharisees and scribes, the teachers of the law, if you are the righteous, I'm not here for you. I'm here to call sinners to repentance, to make a change, to turn to God, to experience conversion, to have forgiveness of sins. That's why I have come. So critics uh, emerge and speak out. They were nearly always present at Jesus' public ministry. We're going to see it a lot more. And now there are more questions and more criticism in verses 33 through 35. So verse 33 says, They said to him, John's disciples, meaning John the Baptist, his forerunner, the one who went before, the one who baptized Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. And I don't think they have a clue uh, what he just said to them. This is a problem over spiritual practices. First, the problem with celebration, verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples. Now they pick on John because John is a good role model. John is a man after God's heart. John is walking with God. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's a humble man. He's a simple man. Um, He goes outside of society. He goes outside of the religious order just to uh, walk with God and to do what God wants him to do. And he, he has followers now who are helping him prepare the way of the Lord and are baptizing people, getting people ready to hear Jesus when he comes. That's why crowds easily developed around Jesus because of what John did. And they fasted and prayed. They just had spiritual dis- disciplines, practices to help them in their relationship with God. But the Pharisees also had this practice. And especially they're focusing on the fasting. So in the Old Testament, there was one day of the year required by the law for fasting of God's people. It was a day of atonement. And through the years, other fasting experiences arose among religious leaders. And some of them were very good. By the time of the first century in the life of Jesus, the Pharisees were fasting twice a week. And the way they perceived it, it was like, if you were as spiritual as us, you would fast twice a week too. Godly people fast twice a week. You don't fast twice a week. You're not a godly person. And so if John's disciples fast, Jesus' disciples don't seem to practice this. This is not going to work. This is a terrible example. And they're just trying to put weakness in Jesus' public ministry. 
but yours they go on eating and drinking. Well, just look back at Levi's house. There they were partying. They shouldn't have been doing that. They should have been mourning the sinfulness of the group of people. And yet they're eating and drinking. Good heavens, they might have been drinking some alcohol at that meal. And so that's a big problem for the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus' disciples are not fasting like they should. And they eat with tax collectors and sinners. They obviously are not pleasing to God. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus speaks of the nature of the celebration. And first he says, there is time to celebrate. We see that in 34. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with him? Now, one of the things in the first century culture was weddings were exciting. They were a great celebration. It was time for a party, time for cheer. I'm for eating and enjoying family and friends and laughter and thanking God and giving praise to him. They were to be a great celebration. And when there's a wedding coming, the friends of the bridegroom, those guys hanging out with the bridegroom before the wedding, they don't fast. That's not appropriate. It's time to celebrate. But there is a time to fast, verse 35. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. Interesting thing here. This is the first mention in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus' death that is coming. That the bridegroom will be taken from them. He was arrested and taken and brought to trial. And then he was crucified and he was buried. And on the third day he rose again. And many days later he ascended into heaven. And that was the time for fasting. There was a time for celebration. There's a time to fast. And Jesus uses this imagery of the bridegroom and this coming wedding. Is there a connection with The wedding feast of the Lamb. I think there's a clue here. In Revelation 19, there's a time when Jesus will meet with his church in heaven at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And there will be a great celebration in heaven after Jesus returns. And then Ephesians 5 makes an allusion to this relationship of Jesus and his church. And he's the bridegroom and the church is the bride. But right now, the friends of the bridegroom are with the groom and they celebrate. But there will be a time when they won't celebrate. There will be a time that it's appropriate for fasting. Number three, the third problem in criticism Verses 36 through 39. I want to read that. Luke chapter 5, verse 36. He told them this parable. Remember, one of the best ways to describe what a parable is, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Something beyond the little story that has a spiritual connection, a dimension. 
Uh, he told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. Everybody knows this. If he does, he, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Everybody knows that. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. Everybody knows that. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. So the problem for something old and something new. And he starts with this, the example of pairing old garments with new patches. So he says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. You know, we have to stretch ourselves because we, we had all kinds of fabric and there's all kinds of ways of putting them together. But this was a little bit more simple and they didn't have pre-shrunk. They had new and then after you wash something, it was new. Later it shrunk, okay? And so uh, his audience understand this clearly. You're, you don't tear a piece out of a new garment and have this new patch, and then you try to put it on something that's old, that's already shrunk, because you sew those together, the new part will shrink, and it's going to be damaged. Otherwise, they will have torn a new garment and the patch from the new, and they won't match. The point is, the old and the new don't always mix. And then he goes on the example of pouring new wine into an old wineskin. This is, you know, the people, his audience understand no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. Why is that? Well, the old wineskin is a little more brittle. It's dried out. It's already been stretched to the max. And when you put new wine or unfermented wine into an old wineskin over a period of time, that new wine is going to expand. And when that happens, it's going to burst that old wineskin. And then what happens? Well, you lost the wine and you've ruined your wineskin. The old and the new don't always mix. New wine, Jesus said, must be poured into something new, a new wineskin. Why is that? Because that new wineskin, and they were, they were made of goat skin, it was leather. It was, it, you know, after it was cut and tanned and, and, and ready, then it was uh, fresh. And so if they poured new wine into it and the new wine expanded, well, the leather expanded with it. And that was an appropriate container for the new wine. And then he says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new. That's just the nature of people. Once they experience something that's part of their life and they like it, they don't want change. And there are going to be people in the first century who like the old stuff and they don't want change and they don't want something new. What were these two illustrations about, the old and the new? And the idea comes across clearly in Jesus' stories is that the old cannot contain the new. In the Old Testament, there was a way of doing things. There was a way of worship. It included a temple in Jerusalem. It had 
It included a very complicated animal sacrificial system and other um, grain offerings, different kinds of offerings and oil that were part of worship. And there, was a, there were specific instruments that were to be used in that, that worship. And they were to be dedicated and set apart and sanctified for use in worship. And then there were special people called priests who were to serve at the temple. And they were Levites and they had to be Levites. And um, these priests had to be certain kinds of physical specimens before they could be a priest. And they wore specific garments on specific occasions. And that was the old way. That was the old container. And Jesus is coming, and he's preaching good news, and they aren't using the old container anymore. They will be using a new container. It will have new ways. There will be new wine. And there has to be a new wineskin. And, and he's moving from the old covenant. And, and they're still in transition as he talks. They're moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. When Jesus' death will pay the sins of the entire world. Never happened before. And where Jesus offers good news If people will believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for their sins, their sins will be forgiven. And heaven will be their home and the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of them. That's never happened before. They didn't get the Holy Spirit if they were genuine believers in the the Old Testament. Sometimes they did. The average genuine, true follower of God did not necessarily have the Holy Spirit in them. But in the New Testament, they will. Under the new covenant, they will. And there'll be this new thing called the church. And the church will be made up of all kinds of peoples. Not just the nation of Israel. Not just the 12 tribes of Israel. There will be all kinds of people who are ministers. And they aren't just Levites. And this is the new. And that's what Jesus is bringing. They don't understand it. I wouldn't have understood it. But I would have... Hope that I would have figured out something new is happening. Okay, let's talk about this. Some lessons from this passage. What are some lessons? The first one is Jesus is still searching for hearts willing to leave everything to follow him. He's never changed on that one. He's still personally wanting to invite people to follow him wholeheartedly. Now, I don't think this is just conversion. Certainly it includes conversion because if somebody hasn't placed their faith in Christ and experienced forgiveness, this leaving everything doesn't make sense. But the idea of leaving everything, in in Levi's case, he walked away from his his job, all of his connections, those everyday friends, and he began to follow Jesus all over the land of Israel, wherever Jesus went. He listened to Jesus. When Jesus gave instructions, he followed Jesus. One day Levi will go all the way to his own death just to follow Jesus. Now, for Levi, he became a full-time missionary or full-time pastor or something like that. Well, Jesus isn't calling everybody to that. 
But Jesus is, is calling everyone to make Jesus the highest priority of their lives, to follow him no matter what. Doesn't mean you have to leave your job. Doesn't mean you have to leave your home or leave your family. For some of you, it may cause you to move or to change vocations. But the main thing is just putting Jesus' priorities ahead of my priorities. Putting his kingdom ahead of my kingdom. Ultimately, it's about Jesus being the Lord of our lives. And Jesus is still searching for people who will allow him to be the Lord, allow him to be master, and we are the servants. Second lesson, Jesus modeled pursuing relationships with people far from God, and so should we. Jesus would push some of us at our comfort level on who we are willing to hang out with. You know, he he went right back into uh, this party, and he hung out with people that probably made a Maybe even the disciples uncomfortable, but Jesus was there and Jesus was leading and Jesus was having a good time. And that's being intentional. How in the world can we share the good news with people who don't yet know the good news if we don't spend time with people? And what happens to most of us as as believers is we just mostly hang out with believers in our spare time. And there's a good part we call fellowship where we come together and we encourage and we strengthen each other, we pray for each other. But that's not what our life is about. We live in the Christian bubble then. We are to go out into our world, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's on the soccer field, at school with our kids, at the university. We're to to go out and be in relationship with people who don't know Jesus yet. Now, when I became a brand new Christian at the age of 25, I really didn't enjoy being, being around Christians, and it was really easy for me to be around non-Christians. And we invited people from our workplace over to our home for, for meals because I was so anxious for them to hear what had happened to me. And God used some of those experiences to bring friends to Christ, uh, college classmates, people that worked in the factory with me, um, when we went to seminary, we invited our neighbors over, even went to the, a Dallas Cowboy football game. Just how do you spend time with people? We invited people that I work with as a painter into our home. I invited somebody in for dinner that I worked with as a security guard that I had never met face to face, but we talked every night on the phone. And he came to faith in Christ at our house. Um, through the years, we've done various things, sometimes going hunting with a, with a friend that doesn't know Jesus yet and spending time with them and getting to know them. Um, back in Stoughton, I ran with a university professor. We trained for several marathons. And we, all we did was run together and we talked like guys. And over a period of time, he came to faith in Jesus. And today, he's following Christ raising his family in a way that honors God. So some of you know that um, after 40 plus years, I decided to buy another motorcycle. And one of the things that we do in the summertime, uh, we found it's been an adventure, is we uh, ride on Wednesday nights with a group in town called the Hog 
H-O-G, Harley Owners Group. And in some ways, it doesn't fit us at all. It's not a normal social group, but everybody loves to ride motorcycles in that group, and that's why they get together. And so we've been stretched a bit in that group. Uh, we don't always enjoy everything that everybody in the group enjoys. We don't always enjoy the discussions that happen in the group. But we care about the people, and the more we've been involved, the more we care. And every Wednesday night they go out for, in the summertime, after a ride, they go out and eat together. And so you just sit and you talk. And they like to be together so much, and in the wintertime, when they put their bikes away, they get together once a month just to do it again. And so we've kind of hung in there with that, and it stretched us a bit. And because they finally figured out that I was a pastor, they asked me to pray at the Christmas dinner. And so I've gotten to do that the last two years. And this year, I just invited everybody who was there. There was probably, I don't know, 100, 150 people. I just said, uh, if you don't have a church to go to on Christmas Eve, we'd just love to have you come to the bridge. This is the old Harley dealership. And this last Christmas Eve, one of the couples came to join us uh, for worship. Be intentional about people who don't know Jesus yet. Who are people far from God? Just people who don't know Jesus yet. It's not about a huge lifestyle thing. It's about people who don't know Jesus yet. Um, Because there's an eternal separation. That's the difference. An eternal separation. Third one. Uh, By the way, Luke 19.10 just reminds us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Number three. There is a time for celebration. There is a time for prayer. There is a time for fasting. All appropriate for us. Um, Luke 15, 7 reminds us there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's excitement in heaven when somebody comes to faith in Christ. That's one reason to have a party. That's one reason we should celebrate. And we should celebrate we should find things to celebrate for that honor God. When, when God answers prayer, when God does something good, when God provides for us, that's worthy of a celebration. It's worthy to take time to say thank you, God, or to praise you. I think we mentioned that to you before, but um, on our 40th anniversary, we decided to take all of our kids with us on a vacation for one week. We were to pay all the bills And the point of it all was, we just want to tell God, thank you for his faithfulness in our marriage, because we wouldn't be together apart from God. And we just wanted to celebrate. Uh, Matthew 6, 5 tells us there's a time to pray, and Jesus said, and when you pray. Jesus assumed his followers would pray, and he gave instructions on how to pray. And that's one of those things that if you start talking about being a Christian, that this prayer thing just comes to the surface. And it's just one of the spiritual disciplines. It's one of the practices. It's, it's how we talk to God and bring our needs to God. And I probably don't have to convince you of that. But the one that's a little more unique, in Matthew six sixteen, where Jesus said, when you fast. There's no command in the New Testament for you to fast. In the Old Testament, there was just one for the, for the Day of Atonement. No command. But Jesus said, when you fast. And there was an assumption there that his followers would find times where fasting was appropriate. And I'm not here to make any rules about fasting, but that's a spiritual discipline. 
And one of the values of fasting is to be able to bring clarity to your spiritual life, to bring a focus, and also a reminder of our dependence on God, that um, we don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that He gives us life, He gives us what we need. And all it is, it's a spiritual discipline. Should you consider a time of fasting? That's all I'm going to say. Number four, some traditions become old and ineffective. The good news about Jesus is never old and ineffective. May our traditions and personal tastes not distort the good news. So certainly there's a big distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New is much better. God's word is always relevant, and the good news of Jesus is always effective. However, throughout the ages, the Christian church has developed traditions. And by the way, traditions often are very, very good. Um, Sometimes traditions get a bit old and outdated. And sometimes um, it's like, we're not even sure what the tradition was there for in the first place. And my point is, we must be careful to keep our focus on God's word and the good news of Jesus. Traditions play well at different times, in different settings, different locations, different purposes. So think about all through the history. Should, what kind of a building should we have? Should we have a huge cathedral? Will that be more spiritual? Should we have stained glass windows? Should we meet in an auditorium like this? Should we always have a cross up front? Should we have professional clergy that wear certain kinds of clothing? Should we have liturgy that's formal? Or should we have a hot band and, uh, you know, loud music? And there's everything in between. And what I'm saying is, those are traditions. What day of the week should we meet? What time of the day should we meet? How many times of the week should we meet? Those are traditions, and they can be good. Let's be careful not to to criticize people who have different traditions than us. But let's remember, if we stay this way for 50 years, we're liable to be considered way out of touch sometime. What we need to focus on is worship. What we need to focus on is being thankful and giving praise. What we need to focus on is uh, teaching the Word of God and reading the Word of God, and applying it to our lives. We have to remember that there are a lot of things that are just tradition. They may work for us now. They may not work for your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. But worship will still be important, and the gospel will still be the gospel. So, we are to be followers of Jesus, not followers of tradition. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for these uh, three snapshots into the life of Jesus and um, how he dealt with criticism. And Lord, we're thankful for um, how you have um, brought us into your fold and how we have come into relationship with you by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and I'm grateful, Lord, that I never had to keep uh, the 613 commands of the Old Testament. 
and that your focus now is primarily on uh, loving God and loving our neighbor and how we relate in doing that. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that Jesus died for us. Help us to keep our focus on the main things and not to become focused on the minor things. And Father, we're reminded that there's been a major transition between the old and the new, from the old covenant to the new covenant, but we also are in a state where we've experienced many good things of the new, but we haven't experienced all of the new yet. And that there's more to come. And that there is an eternal kingdom. And we are in a place right now of not yet. And right now we still have tears and crying and pain. And hurt. But there's a time coming when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. And we will have joy eternally. May we be faithful. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for coming to the bridge today. Uh, Next week we'll be in Luke chapter 6. And Jesus continues to have some critics in his audience. Um, As you go this week, think about who in your life may not be in your social group that you should invite in. Okay? God bless you all. We're dismissed.